Will you turn with me, please, to Second uh, Peter chapter three? Second Peter chapter three. We're going to take some aspects of the whole chapter, but we can read a few verses from the beginning. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? There is nothing new under the sun, as the Bible itself tells us. And we find that the resistance we know of in our own day to the gospel, and to our emphasis in the gospel that Christ will return on the day of judgment, that's something that Peter had to face and the apostles had to face. The church has had to face all the way down through the generations. Peter mentions the coming of Christ in the first uh, part of the letter, where you find him saying in chapter 1, verse 16, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he goes on to speak about what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration that you find described in the Gospels, where Jesus was transfigured, where he shone so brightly that they couldn't see, they couldn't look at him directly, was just more bright and brighter than anything they could describe. And what uh, Peter is doing is drawing his readers' reminder, uh, minds back to that as a reminder of that first coming of Jesus. Then he comes here to speak about his coming again, the second coming, which uh, is uh, what he means here in this particular chapter, um, where he talks about the coming of the Lord uh, and how that's being scoffed at by those who scoff at the truth of the gospel, where is the promise of his coming? But ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. So what Peter is doing is saying that the, the majesty that he saw, a glimpse of at least, in that first appearance of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, is something he now relates to the second coming of the appearance of Jesus, which will come as a more splendid appearance than was ever seen in his first coming and he is now concerned that we actually know how to live not only in consequence of the first coming of Jesus but in anticipation of the second coming and therefore the burden of his letter really is to bring these Christians to whom he's writing a message of encouragement a message of confirmation of the things they believe of the things they're living out in their lives because they are indeed themselves in a world where they face false teaching. It's very obvious as you read, as you read this letter and the first letter as well and as we've seen other letters in the New Testament that false teaching, while it wasn't new but it had set in in the days of the apostles even into the church of that age and Peter is making it clear here that, um, that um, false teaching is something that they they are aware of themselves when you find uh, in chapter 2 of this letter he says false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you 
who will bring in secretly bring in destructive heresies. You know, friends, there are congregations today in the world, some of the biggest congregations today in the world are under the teaching of heretics, false teachers within the church, within the church in the widest sense of the word church, because they deny certain fundamental foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. The most dangerous thing for you and for me is not facing the false teaching that's out in the world, not facing the false teaching that's in other religions, not facing the false teaching or the uh, way in which uh, atheism or humanism or even secularism will seek to reject the things of the gospel. The most dangerous thing for you is if you have false teaching coming from this pulpit and from the things that you actually read and hear as you're seeking to know more of Bible truth. That is what Peter is adamant about. That's always been the case for the church. The most dangerous thing for the church is false teaching from inside. Because people, if they're persuaded by false teaching, will end up with false living, with the kind of lifestyle that is contrary to what the Bible itself sets out for us. So this is the environment in which Peter is operating and writing and writing this to these people. He needs to remind them of certain things and as we'll see he's reminding them especially of facts and that's so important whenever we face false teaching. We go back to the facts that God has established in uh, his work of salvation especially. So let's look at two things. Here is... uh, context where we're confronted with scoffing and a context where we're comforted by truth. When you're confronted with scoffing, we need to come to be comforted and assured by coming to the truth of God and seeing what is that saying to us in regard to the scoffing, to the unbelief, to the ridicule of the gospel that you find in the world. Well, here it is, Peter and these readers confronted by scoffing. What is that scoffing driven by? And what do these scoffers actually conclude from their own mindset? These are the two issues that we'll look at under how they're confronted by scoffing. What is it driven by? Well, he's telling us, he is saying here that they are driven by their own sinful desires. Verse 3, they're knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, the last days are the days from the ascension of Christ when he went back to glory until he comes back again. So you can say in a real sense, the last days, Peter is referring to, just as Paul refers to it as well, um, includes everything that happens in history from the time of Christ being in this world, or at least from the time of his going back to heaven, until he returns. These are the last days the final era or age of the world in its history. What he's saying is, these people are driven, he says, by their own sinful desires. It's a radical difference to the Christian mindset that believes the the Bible, the truth of God's word. Let me just um, remind you of what Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans in chapter 8, where he describes there the difference between the Christian mindset, the saved mindset, and that of those who reject the truth or the unsaved. He says, remember there in verse 5 of chapter 8 of Romans, he says there, for those who live according to the flesh, 
according to their own sinful mindset, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. To set the mind on the things of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's will. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now he's dealing there with a big contrast, a huge contrast. The mind of the flesh, the mind of the Spirit. The carnal mind, the spiritual mind in the older translation. What he's saying is the unregenerate mind, the unbelieving mind, the mind of the flesh. The terminus of that, the characteristic of that is death. The contrast with that is the mind of the spirit, the mind in which God has produced an acceptance of his truth so that we live by that truth, so that that truth shapes our life into what it ought to be. And that's the radical difference that Peter is pointing out as well, where he's stirring up their minds by way of reminder to remember these predictions, knowing, he says this, that these scoffers are going to come following their own sinful desires. See, the Christian has a different standpoint. Now, if I can put it this way, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is something that you frequently find in the... In the uh, way in which, if we can use the word, the scoffers, as they put it there, the unbelieving mind, to the unbelieving mind, to the scoffing mind, that is something that they see as ridiculous. And it's within the church that some of that is found as well. There are people within the church, there are preachers within the church, there are ordained ministers within the church in the wider sense today who don't believe that Christ actually rose from the dead. They believe that that's just something that conveys a truth to us without needing to believe in the facts physically of his resurrection from the dead now you and I don't believe that you and I know that Christ rose from the dead we believe the Bible in its description of Christ literally meeting with people after his resurrection and the Bible's description of the tomb having nothing left in it but the grave clothes that Jesus left behind but the scoffer says from outside of the resurrection in other words you could say that when you believe in Christ when you trust in Christ, when you commit your life to Christ, obviously you believe his word when you do that as well, but you're taking your standpoint then in looking out at the world and looking out at everything, in fact, from the standpoint of Christ's resurrection. If you like, from within Christ's resurrection. If I can explain that somehow. Um, let's say you're looking into a very ornate, magnificent house and it's night time and it's all lit up and you can see some of the wonderful artifacts in that house from outside and you're trying to just get a more detailed view of them but you don't want to go inside the house um, you're just you're not of a mind to go um, and ask for access to the house you prefer to do it from outside and you see a wonderful painting there on the wall and you can't really see it and you can see something of the outline of it something of the detail but only just a tiny little bit but the person inside the house has the advantage hasn't he because they're looking at it from being inside they can go up close, they can see the detail, they can see the brush marks they have a far better view of it from different angles looking at 
the Christian faith from outside of salvation is a bit like that. He makes out, out some details of it because these people, the scoffers, are still following their own mindset, their own sinful mindset, their own resistant mind, their own unbelieving mind. They see some things and they say, well, yeah, but that's, that's not for me. That's really quite different to the way I want to live my life. Whereas when God takes you inside, you then appreciate what you see. You value God's truth. You see the Bible as something that you didn't see necessarily before as absolutely vital to your human development, certainly to your believing development. So that's what you're facing, as Peter was facing, this idea that all of these things are all very well for Christians, but actually they're not really true anyway. So it's not worth believing in them. We'll just go on with our scoffing. That's what so much of the world today thinks. And they conclude, therefore, that Christ is not going to return, that the teaching of the apostles about this is just something of, maybe it's a crutch for people who want that sort of crutch, something that helps to support them through crisis times or something like that. But they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. So surely it's just going to be like this. Where is the promise of his coming? When is this going to happen? Look at all of these hundreds, thousands of years since Jesus was in the world. If you believe the Bible, they're saying, these scoffers, where's the promise of his coming? When is this going to come to be fulfilled? There's no sign of it happening. So we'll just dismiss it. Can't be true. You see what's happening? They're depending on their own reason, following their own sinful desires. In verse 5, they deliberately overlook this fact. See, the Bible deals with facts. They're deliberately overlooking this fact. What they're doing is proving to themselves the things they want to believe. That's the terrible thing that heresy is, because heresy, which is a deviation of the, from the truth of God, or a twisting of the truth of God, it really, at the end of the day, sets before people what they want to listen to, what they like to listen to. And very often that's why heretical preachers, and, um, when they present their version of the gospel, it's not so much what they include that's really important to take note of. It's what they don't include. Because you can include, include a lot about Jesus, a lot about God, but if you leave out his resurrection as a fact... If you leave out as a fact that he's coming back again, if you leave as a fact that you need to be born again, that born again means radically a change radically in your life from within your very being, then you are actually believing heresy. And people who believe that want to persuade themselves that that's really what the Bible is saying. So they persuade themselves and then they try to persuade others and others will follow them. You see what's happening is that they conclude that what's actually stated in the Bible can't possibly be true, factually correct. And so they dismiss it. In other words, they don't leave a place for something that's absolutely crucial for any Christian life, and that's faith. Faith. Now, the Bible tells us in uh, the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11, that when you want to approach the Bible and study the Bible, you don't begin with your own reasoning. You don't leave aside your own reason, your own mind, the working of your mind, but you don't begin with that. And you don't put that first and foremost. What it's saying is, 
by faith we understand that the worlds were created by the word of God. And that's exactly what Peter is saying as well. And the scoffers in the world will say, what, you don't actually believe in literal creation, do you? You don't believe that there was a God who actually created all these bodies, these uh, stars, the, the uh, other bodies in the universe, the planets and so on, and placed them where they are? Surely you don't believe that's been outdated for hundreds of years, for centuries. Surely you don't believe that anymore. Well, that's the kind of thing that Peter was facing in his day. People who dismissed God's truths when it speaks about facts as if it's not really facts at all. And you see what he's saying here is uh, they deliberately overlook this fact. This fact of creation. This fact of God creating. And they don't leave space for faith. You know, one of the things that the Christian faith, as it's usually called, as we call it ourselves, the Christian faith, the Christian way of life, opponents of the Christian faith and of the Bible's teaching will actually not want to um, include anything of faith, in a more general sense, in your everyday thinking. Dismiss faith. Unless it's just faith in yourself or faith in human ability. Well, that's what Peter is actually denouncing here. But you see in verse 5 here, um, is saying they deliberately overlook this fact. It's not that they're ignorant. It's not that they don't know anything about the truth. And this again is something that the Bible is uh, out to actually say to us very often. They reject this fact deliberately. They choose to ignore this fact. The facts of creation, the facts of God creating, the facts of the flood in the days of Noah. All of these things, as Peter says, are factually correct as described in the Bible what are these scoffers doing? They're saying, it's not, they're not saying, I don't know anything about these things. What they're saying is, well, I know about them, I know something about them, but I ignore them, I reject them, I don't believe in them, I don't see them as factually dependable at all. That's what they conclude. Following their own reason, that's what happened. So they reject God and his power and creation and his sustaining of all things and if I can take you back again to Romans just to finish that point um, it's important in the very opening chapter of Romans that Paul is dealing with certain types of human behavior which he regards as deviations from the norm or from what's acceptable to God um, and that's very current in our own generation as well though there are other things as well as that that the Bible denounces nevertheless this is what he's saying in Romans and chapter 1, you remember there how he's concerned in verses 18 to 23 to say that even through the creation itself, through what you see in the creation around you, God is speaking to us. He's saying, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, or by the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now he's not saying they're, they are without excuse for being ignorant, which is how some people interpret that. What Paul is saying is they are without excuse for not having accepted the evidence that they have in the creation itself and following other devices into idolatry, which is what he goes on to describe. 
alternatives to God, to the living God. So that's where we are today as well. We're confronted by scoffing. And this is the nature of scoffing. It's driven by sinful desires, driven by a heart that only looks to itself and its own reasoning. And it's uh, concluding thereby that these things the Bible presents as facts are actually not so at all. And therefore they choose something else instead. Let's look, though, secondly, at how Peter deals with that and wants us to be comforted by the truth. And two things in that. Firstly, the importance of a believing mind. He calls here a sincere mind. Uh, He says there, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. When he uses that word sincere, it's also found in 1 Peter chapter 2, it means unpolluted, unadulterated, not having been poisoned. Because what he's saying is, here are your minds, you're still believing the truth of God, you're facing all of this uh, heretical poison that's going about, about Jesus, about his coming again, and so on. And I'm addressing your unpolluted, your sincere mind. That's very strong language. But then it is the Bible, it is God's word, it is God's truth. And when you come to the Bible, you don't expect to find a God who's politically correct. You don't find a God who panders to human preferences as far as how things are described. When God wants to describe what's offensive to him, he'll describe it as he sees it. Not as you and I would like to see it. Not as we would prefer it to be. So he's calling it here the unpolluted mind. And by implication, the mind of the scoffer is a polluted mind. The filth of unbelief and of sin and of sinful desires and a sinful lifestyle characterizes that mind. Now he's saying, you have your sincere mind, your unpolluted mind. And so, our mind is so important, and how our mind, how our thinking is shaped. Today, let your thinking, let my thinking, while it's important to know everything that's going on in the world, let your thinking and my thinking be shaped by God's truth, by God's word. Because that's what it's for. And that's the highest use of your mind that you can actually Um, engage your mind in in conforming to the truth of God second thing is that these scoffers were actually predicted now this is an interesting point I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment knowing this first of all that scoffers will come in the last days Um, and this is something that uh, actually was predicted by the scriptures long before Peter wrote his epistle Why is that important? Because as you find in the Bible predictions of what's going to happen in the last days, that itself confirms, or it's a point that confirms that this Bible is actually reliable, that this word is actually God's truth, that you confront the scoffing of this generation that you and I belong to with the facts of God's truth, with the facts that it reveals, and with this fact, among others, that this word itself is a dependable, reliable word. And indeed, in many respects, there is no more important fact for you to know and to understand and to believe and to appreciate than that, that this word of the Scripture is, in fact, reliable. It's a word that God has given us in its entirety as his own word. And so the more skepticism and the more scoffing you find coming into the world as you listen to their their response to the gospel, what that is doing is actually not as they think because of their thoughts 
actually denouncing the truth um, as they think, well, that proves the ridiculousness of the Bible. It actually does the opposite. Because the more unbelief and scoffing and ridicule you get of the gospel and of the Christian life and of the church's emphasis when we emphasize the things that are pleasing to God and things that are not pleasing to Him, all of that is just confirming the truth of the Bible, not the opposite. That's what Peter is emphasizing for them. How comforting that is for us today when you're confronted with the temptation just to let go the truth of, of, of the Bible and to just choose yourself what appears to be factually dependable and what isn't. Here is God saying to you, everything in it is. Because even the, 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 the unbelief of these last days is predicted in the Bible. In fact, when you go to Paul again and... Peter mentions Paul here later in the chapter, as you know. When you go to Paul um, and some of the last writings of Paul, uh, when he wrote to Timothy, for example, you'll find him saying there, um, in just teaching Timothy how he was to follow on in his ministry of the gospel from Paul himself. Well, in Second Timothy, the last uh, letter that Paul actually wrote, we believe, he says, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and so on. What a list he's giving there of characteristics to be found in the last days of those who oppose the gospel. Look around you. Listen to the word, the world. Listen to what's being said. Look into how the news is presented to us. Look into documentaries. Look into books that are written about ethical issues, about history about the world as we see it. And here is the Bible saying it's all predicted by God of the last days. You can rely on this Bible. You can build your eternity on what this Bible says to you. Because the scoffers overlook the real events that are described. But that's the next point. How comforting it is that you can depend on this Bible. So the importance of a believing mind, sincere mind, scoffers are predicted, but it deals with real events. You see, it speaks here about the days of Noah and how by the word of God, the flood came, as God in fact had himself uh, said beforehand to Noah and through Noah, the world was deluged by water. And by that same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire against the day of judgment. What is Peter doing? See, if Peter wasn't really factually correct about the flood and what happened in the days of Noah, he can't build any arguments. If you take these things as just fables or fairy stories or not facts or just made-up events, you can't build any arguments on them. You can't build anything as a preparation for eternity on them. And that's exactly what Peter is doing. In other words, you come to this passage, you pull out uh, anything that appears to be factually accurate, and then you've got nothing left. 
Because the argument there as to how to prepare for the second coming of Christ is related to the factuality of what happened in history in the days of Noah. That's his view of the future. It's tied to his view of the past. And it's all to do with being factually correct. I need to move on. The time is going. The importance of a believing mind. But finally, in this uh, matter of being comforted and assured by the truth of God, it's not just the importance of a believing mind, but the imperative of a godly life. The imperative of a godly life. How do you set out against unbelief, against scoffing, against what is untrue? Well, it depends course in your mind of course it's been as we said the importance of a believing mind but you also need to live a godly lifestyle that's one of the things that counters heresy that counters the false teacher that counters the sinful lifestyle and he talks here about from verse 11 onwards uh, uh, he talks about since all these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for the coming day of God, the coming of Jesus in return. You see, what he's saying is, knowing the truth actually fuels our present godliness of life. What he says, you have a great advantage. You have a huge advantage having this sincere mind, having this truth of God accepted on your part. You're in a position not like the scoffers to reject them, but to actually attend to how you prepare properly for the coming of Christ. Since you know all these things, what sort of people ought you to be? In verse 14 he goes on, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, same sort of argument, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and count that the patience of the Lord, which is what uh, characterizes the present span of history, that Christ is patient, that the Lord is patient, not willing that any should perish. But uh, in summary, what he's saying there is, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in verse 13. According to his promise, you see, the truth, again, that you believe, the promise of God. We are waiting for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, put that against the context in which Peter is writing to these people, surrounded by scoffing, facing this scoffing, having this false teaching all around them and even in their midst as a people. He's saying, hold on to the truth of God's word. Keep on believing his promise. And his promise includes this. We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When you're tired of the unbelief, when you're tired, well, you keep praying for people to be saved, when you're still tired of the ungodliness and the sound of ungodliness and the filthy language and the lifestyles that are opposed to God and to purity of life, when that becomes tedious in your soul as it does from time to time, what do you do? You turn to the truth of God and you say, look, there's a better time coming and for God's people there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And you know, when you look into that promise, and you put that promise against all that you see that is against God in this world your heart leaps with anticipation doesn't it? should do anyway mine doesn't all the time or does yours I'm sure but when you just stop and think of what this is saying instead of a creation that's blighted by sin that's under the curse of God due to our human sin what is the destiny of the creation itself it's going to participate as Romans 8 puts it in the revealing of the liberty of the sons of God 
The glory of Christ. The glory of God's people. The glory of a restored universe. Heavens and earth made new in which righteousness dwells. A world, an environment in which there's nothing against God. In which everything is in accordance with God's will. In which people love what is like God instead of hating it. Doesn't that set your heart aglow? That that is really your destiny as a Christian? And doesn't that shine an incredibly bright and important light into the darkness of the present world? That's God's truth for you. Shine that light, light in to the gloom. And he finishes by an emphasis on growth. Take care, he says in verse 17, that you are not carried away, that's you plural, with the error of lawless people and you lose your own stability. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And it's plural again, grow plural. The benefit of growing together as a people, as Christians. The benefit of belonging to the church, of being the church. Come across it so often in the scriptures. What he's saying here is grow, grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. And in many ways that's really the most important thing about countering false teaching, countering unbelief, countering scoffing. That together we grow in the knowledge and in the grace of Christ. And the most important thing at the end of the day anyway, isn't it, is this relationship with Jesus himself a real person the living Jesus who is now in heaven and whose return we await grow he says in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and what ultimately matters today to you and to me personally and together as a people is knowing Christ having Christ waiting for Christ's return continuing to believe Christ and to believe his word because that's what the Bible, where the Bible takes us and that's what we're seeking to do frequently in preaching following the pattern of the Bible itself beloved we are stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder may God bless his, these thoughts on his word we're going to conclude now singing in psalm number 2 psalm number 2 from the sing psalms version to chun soldo and we're singing verses 1 to 6 the teaching of these words and throughout the psalm is self-evident that the unbelieving scoffing world continues to laugh at God's truth and God laughs in derision in return which is a very serious thing and God then sets out this constant reminder to the world that God has already chosen his king, Jesus, and that we are counseled to pay homage to him as the royal son in the final verse. We'll sing the first uh, six verses there. Why do the heathen nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do the heathen nations rage? Why do the people? 
if you allow me to get to the main door after the benediction, please. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore. Amen.